Now, the motion picture that shows what America's all-time number one bestseller first put into words. Dolls, the instant turn-on. For instant love. Instant excitement. Ultimate hell. Starring Barbara Parkins as Anne. Good girl with a million dollar face and all the bad breaks. Patty Duke as Neely, who was such a nice kid. And then someone put her name in lights and turned her into a lush. Sharon Tate as Jennifer. International sex symbol, victimized by everyone. Now, the all-time bestseller is the motion picture you wanted it to be. Valley of the Dolls. Ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. As always, I'm your host, Kristen Lopez. And I am at co-host, Drea Clark. <laughs> Samantha Ellis is not here with us this week, but she is here in spirit, as always. She'll be back on the next episode. I think this is a little too modern for her. I think she liked it. It's just hard getting a word ed- edgewise when there's so many of us with loud opinions. That's very true. We do have a special guest this episode. We are being graced with the awesome presence of Lindsay Romaine. Lindsay, how are you? I'm doing super well. I'm so happy to be here. Lindsay is so happy to be here again. Technically, we did record this episode last week and we had nothing but problems. Quentin Tarantino's ghost, even though he's not dead, it was like screwing with our electronic. I don't know. We had a lot of issues last episode. I'm glad that so far, knock on wood, nothing bad has happened, and everybody's back. They were technical issues. We were not trying to steal each other's husbands or anything. <laughs> but Lindsay, for people who don't know about your writing or how wonderful you are, what is your background in film? Well, it's long and storied. I started out as sort of a blogger, I guess, 10 years ago, writing on the side. And then I worked in television for a while, television marketing, classic television marketing, actually. And then I just started writing more on the side. I started freelancing a lot. And then I became a full-time freelancer. I worked for sites like Thrillist and Vulture and built up a back catalog of work and eventually forayed that into a staff writer position at Nerdist, which is where I'm at right now. Lindsay is incredibly prolific. She is always writing stuff. And it's amazing that she's still got time to sleep. I try to find it when I can. (laughs) You are a resident Manson expert because you've been documenting the Manson family and Sharon Tate all in anticipation of Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So it only made sense to have you on this episode talking about 1967's Valley of the Dolls. What is your background and interest in Sharon Tate, the Manson family, prior to being on this episode? It's hard. I don't remember exactly when I first started getting into Manson stuff. I want to say it was probably when I was in high school. I had my morbid phase of being into true crime and stuff. That's when that interest really developed. And that's how I found my way into Sharon Tate's filmography and being a fan of hers was unfortunately, through her murder. It started off with a fascination with Manson, eventually became a fascination with everything surrounding that Hollywood at the time and Sharon Tate. And through that feeling privileged that I found her work and became a big fan of her as a person. Drea, what was your background with Sharon Tate and Valley of the Dolls before recording? That just made me think, Drea, talk about your friendship with Sharon Tate, which is entirely imaginary, but still pretty detailed in its imaginariness. It's a split thing because the movie we're talking about with Valley of the Dolls I saw in high school and remembered even before I saw it there was something about the title and the poster art I thought it was so risque or it was going to be so risque and I saw it when I was younger enough from the characters when you're younger and you see anything like teen girls or young women and they're living a life on the town I mean I thought this way about Sweet Valley High too a grain of salt is necessary. But so I was sort of besotted with it in that way. She obviously is otherworldly beauty and was taken with that. My Manson knowledge, like 10 years after seeing this movie, so deeper teens, early 20s, I read Helter Skelter. There was a few of us reading it, like a sort of a book 
club before book clubs. I guess they would just call it school, although we weren't studying it or anything. So tying those together in my head, when I finally um, it clicked that this woman I had seen as a young girl and held up in such a way was one of the real life people of this horrifying tragedy was a strange pop culture collision in my brain. I have very strong memories around as if it happened to me or as if she's someone I know. Revisiting the Valley of the Dolls now with all this time behind us and with the Manson family and Sharon Tate having taken such a different and broader historical role in pop culture, it's really interesting to revisit it. She's clearly not the only character in it. There was so much in re-looking at it that I know we'll get into the other two female stars of this film and the ways in which all of them, some of the narrative of their characters mirrored their realities. There's a lot here to dig into. Like Lindsay mentioned, I had known about Sharon Tate more through how she died than her body of work. I had watched Valley of the Dolls more as a curiosity project as opposed to being necessarily interested in it as a film. It wasn't just that it had Sharon Tate in it. It was also that I had commonly heard it referred to as a terrible movie. I had always thought that was indicative of what Sharon Tate was doing as an actress, that she was just this hot girl that unfortunately died, but she had made bad movies. And so I discovered that was incorrect very quickly. I love this movie. I've seen it several times. I own the Criterion. It definitely is of 1967. But if you're looking at what was going on in the time period regarding film and television, it makes sense why it was successful and why people were attracted to it. And you can also understand why people were attracted to Sharon Tate. And we can talk more about her character in a second. I do have to roll my eyes when people say it's one of the worst movies to watch or it's really terrible. I have to laugh because they... That's something that's often lobbed at, quote unquote, women's films, especially in the 50s and 60s. If you've seen them, melodrama was a huge thing and it was always very high camp. I've come to appreciate that with this movie more than anything. It's a really fascinating, just even rewatching it, which I did this last week, you kind of forget how truly bizarre it is. It's got a lot of really strange, like, set pieces and weirdness to it that's so indicative of the time, but it's just like, a fascinating, fascinating movie for that. It's funny because as again, I'm sure we'll explore further, but it being an adaptation of Jacqueline Suzanne's novel, obviously a novel tends to pack in a lot more story than a film. And it's always been a point of amusement that with this film, rather than, oh, let's winnow down some of the threads and maybe just concentrate. They're like, no, let's shove all of the threads and just condense it and make it happen. It's a movie with a really strange sense of time. <laughs> like a time passes in a really weird way, but that lends to its strange beauty in a way. I have no idea the time span between when we're first introduced to the three women and then when it ends. It could be 20 years and they didn't bother with aging makeup. It could be five years of rapid ambition growth. It's a doozy. But I also agree with Kristen, and I'm sure with Lindsay as well, this is not a terrible movie. We have all seen legitimately terrible movies at this point, and whether they fall into the, oh, it's so bad, it's good, or just one of those, like, I don't want to watch this, I'm not getting any enjoyment out of it. Valley of the Dolls has merit to it. There's things that go wackadoodle, but they're always engaging, and there's a lot of things that they're trying to do, and a lot of those are successful. It has such a different take on the idea of camp. When people talk about this, especially people who haven't seen it, it's like they're describing Barbarella or something. They're talking about, oh, it's so grand and out there and it's so histrionic. There's certainly that kitchen sink melodrama that Kristen was alluding to, but I don't necessarily know if I would call this a campy film. Would you guys? It's funny you brought up Barbarella, which came out the year after this. Because I feel like everything in the late 60s gets really lumped together, especially once psychedelia started to take over. You had a lot of established actors trying to figure out how to deal with the zeitgeist. The studio system by this point crumbling. It's completely dismantled. And so you had this desire 
to bridge the new schools, the young kids that were coming up in this era of sex, drugs, and weed. And then you have the older studio actors who did not know what to do once somebody wasn't telling them what projects they were going to make. So you got this bizarre amalgamation of movies that came out in the late 60s, early 70s, where you get Jennifer Jones in a movie about cults, which if you've not seen Angel, Angel, Down We Go, it is terrible, but it is so worthwhile. Just to watch Jennifer Jones have no idea what movie she's making. But you got that a lot. You got like Betty Davis making weird movies and you get Susan Hayward in this movie. But this is far more restrained than a lot of the psychedelic films that were coming out. This is, as we've mentioned, melodrama in the vein of something like Peyton Place, which was the gold standard for these types of movies. These films were commonly based on salacious tomes aimed at women. If it wasn't Jacqueline Suzanne, it was Jerome Robbins. A lot of them were inspired by soaps, which were one of the most highly watched things on television at this time. The female market was huge. If we're looking at camp in the same vein as like John Waters, something like a hairspray, I can see that. If we're talking about camp, in the same vein as like Barbarella's and the just completely out there. This is a little too down home. This is the Hollywood satire gone awry. And there were, again, a lot of Hollywood satires that came out in the late 60s because I think Hollywood is finally able to make fun of itself. So I put this as like not nearly as over the top as something like SOB, but it's far grittier than like Inside Daisy Clover. Part of the reason why people are so surprised by its so-called campiness is probably just due to a real lack of awareness of what you're talking about. When I was first starting to get into Manson stuff and eventually into Sharon Tate stuff, I had no sense of knowledge of most movies from the 60s, that, especially like women pictures. But I had a sense of Valley of the Dolls just because it was such a blockbuster and because Jacqueline Suzanne was such a name. I knew that book, I knew the title. So I think for a lot of people, it was their first window into this. At least for me, it was. And so I feel like that is probably why they're surprised. Once you start dipping your toes into the genre a little bit more, you're like, eh, I think this one's pretty tame in comparison. This was directed by Mark Robson, who was a studio director starting in the 40s and initially made Valmutin horror films. So he'd done stuff like The Seventh Victim and The Ghost Ship. He eventually transitioned into making dramas. He did do a couple melodramas. He did stuff like Susan Hayward's 1949 film My Foolish Heart. He did Bright Victory. And then he transitioned into making melodramas. He made the 1957 adaptation of Peyton Place. He also did From the Terrace. And his later films were grittier. I almost think to like push aside Valley of the Dolls and stuff like Peyton Place. His second to last movie was 1974's Earthquake, which if you've not seen Earthquake, oh, it is such insane fun involving Charlton Heston and Ava Gardner and an earthquake. His last film was actually 1979's Avalanche Express, which is not a movie about a train going through an avalanche. Disappointed by that. He definitely understood what he was doing. The script by Helen Deutsch is pretty good. She only had 22 credits. Actually had not done a lot of movies that I would immediately think she'd be associated with, but she did do National Velvet, the script for that. But we should mention the plot really briefly before we start ripping this apart. I was going to say, we might need to clue some people in in case they haven't seen it for a minute. So this is the story of three women. The novel is set in 1945, but the movie is firmly set in 1967. You have Anne Wells, played by Barbara Parkins, who is the good girl who has moved to the big bad city of New York to follow her dreams. She ends up being this fly on the wall at a theatrical agency. She ends up falling in love with a guy named Lion Burke, which is a name that some person is given in this movie. And she essentially is just the fly on the wall having to listen to all the shenanigans that happen. She meets Neely O'Hara, played by Patty Duke, who is a star on the rise, who ultimately ends up being lost in the world of drug addiction. And Neely's friend Jennifer North, played by Sharon Tate, who is a beautiful girl who believes that she doesn't have anything to offer except her body and ends up marrying a crooner who gets Huntington's disease. 
one of these plots is a lot more depressing than the other. <laughs> yes, there's not a lot of levity for the Jennifer North Sharon Tate role. There's not a lot of intentional levity in this movie. I think a lot of the humor is really, really unplanned. This movie is funny in the worst ways. It's great to watch this if you've ever gone to like San Francisco and watch. They show this at the Castro a lot because this is kind of like a queer classic for a lot of people. It's hilarious that there are some lines that you would just think are so offensive to gay people that they just love. Sharon Tate actually has my most favorite offensive line in this movie. It's really something. It's really something. And she just says it's so deadpan. So deadpan. I watched it with my roommate recently who had never seen it before. When that line came on, she literally gasped. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. Patty Duke has a similar line that's just like, she's a little too comfortable saying certain words. It was a different time. So let's talk about the overarching plot line of this, which is the Barbara Parkins and Wells character. I feel like I'm going to be saying this a lot. It really is best when it comes through her character she's beautifully vacant yes she's beautifully vacant that's great and it's expressed so much in her wardrobe uh, she wears a lot of beige <laughs> a lot of like two-tone brown colors that seem to express her inner blankness as well she is the queen of tan and not like healthy skin tan actually tan's not healthy but you know what i'm saying her wardrobe is so black that I actually didn't notice how attractive Barbara Perkins was until the middle of the first act. This movie starts with her wandering into this agency and basically cajoling someone into hiring her as a secretary. It's very interesting. I've never had that job tactic work, but maybe I'll give it a go. A little bit further along, all of a sudden, she goes in to take notes, and the client who has this big advertising campaign, within seconds, is like, I'd like someone like this young woman. And literally, is like, picks her to be the spokesperson, the cover girl. I, at that point, was like, oh, I guess she is pretty, huh? I didn't really notice in all the horrible clothing. She has a face built for being a model, and that's about it. This is essentially a Ramona Clef where Jacqueline Suzanne was just writing about the people that she met, not too shyly either. And so you're watching this thinking Barbara Parkins is supposed to be Jacqueline Suzanne. And I was like, if Barbara Parkins is playing Jacqueline Suzanne, then Jacqueline Suzanne's really boring. It's not disrespectful to Barbara Parkins as a performer, but there's several love scenes in this movie. And every time she gingerly walks in the room with a towel around her and the Dion Warwick song is always blaring in this movie. Oh, did Dion Warwick have a song in this? I didn't notice. <laughs> you didn't notice the 80,000 times? I've been singing it since we recorded the first time. That was a week ago. I mean, even the love scenes in this movie are just so... <laughs> it's hard figuring out... Who they're servicing because there's not a sexiness even with the girls performances just apologies ahead of time i'm gonna keep saying girls because I, I feel like that's how they're talked about of course 2019 me is trying to say women but you guys get where i'm coming from i feel like these young ladies are talked about in this way where they're meant to be the up and coming one of the things we had previously talked about was there is a history beyond kitchen melodrama, beyond whatever, of looking at women in the city and the How to Marry a Millionaire and Three Coins in the Fountain, a constant interest in what young women will do if they're in the city. But of course, there needs to be a little pack of them because they're not safe. And what they want to do is always land a man because what else? There might be some sort of ambition on the sides, but it's primarily about the land of man. So this, the 1967 take on that, the expanding it of all of these girls did have an ambition beyond it, but both their ambition and their sexuality, it's always this thing of if you were doing this to style them for women who would be obsessed with what they're wearing, they would all be wearing much better things all the time. And if you were doing it to style them for men, they would have more boobs out. I don't know. I could do a whole thing just about the styling. And maybe that speaks to the audience. And maybe that speaks to a lot of things. Just the combination of their sexuality and ambition is such a unique crossroads in this film. You bring up 
a good point, which is these women are meant to represent every woman. It's like the Spice Girls. You can watch this and be like, I'm an Anne, or I'm a Jennifer, or I'm a Neely. If you're a Neely, I'm hoping that you're seeking help. That's the way I always interpret these three women narratives that we got in the 50s and the 60s. Women couldn't be all of these things. They had to be clearly delineated into one of these things, and then you identified from there. That's fine, but this movie is just so intense, and everybody's plotline is so exaggerated that the relatability factor is just absent from this film completely. For the record, I'm a Helen Lawson, and I feel you should know that about me. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out, I've been thinking about this for the last like week, who I would be. I'd want to be a Jennifer or a Neely, but I feel like I just might be the bathroom attendant that tells Helen Lawson, you're such a great star, people should respect you more. <laughs> That's not a bad person to be, to be fair. Lindsay, who would you identify with? Ooh, I want to say, honestly, I probably would be a Neely, just in terms of being kind of batshit. <laughs> not that I fully identify with all of her problems, but I do think the highs and lows of her are something that I <laughs> unfortunately relate to. I would like to be a Jennifer without the very tragic ending <laughs> that she has. She is the one that's the most that you could see as an esteemable way to live your life. Jennifer is both a supportive partner, but not a total doormat, which is hard for the choices she ultimately makes. When she's together with her partner, I don't know, maybe she is a doormat. Maybe I shouldn't talk about Jennifer North as being the best one to choose out of them. Very obviously, Jacqueline Suzanne thought Barbara Parkins was the one to want to emulate. There's two other characters in this movie. Neely O'Hara is the one who gets the majority of the screen time. This was Patty Duke's big I am an adult role, as we always see with actresses who started out as child stars and then had to transition into adulthood. And boy, did she come out swinging. It's almost insane to think that she was Helen Keller in The Miracle Worker just a couple years before this. And then she's playing this broken drug addict cynic who's willing to screw over all of her friends to get what she wants it gave patty duke the ability to show that she could do something different i think she's a lot of fun in just how deliciously evil she is the movie starts with her as this poor girl who gets written out of helen lawson's show because helen lawson knows she has talent and she doesn't want that to overshadow her and you're like oh I sympathize with this girl. She just wants to sing and she knows that she's got value. And then as soon as she gets not even a lot, a little taste of stardom, it's just like, I'm on pills and I need to do what I have to in order to succeed. The role was heavily inspired by Judy Garland. And Judy Garland was actually supposed to be in this movie. She's supposed to play Helen Lawson. She was infamously fired, allegedly for being erratic. I have a friend who told me the story. At a certain point, Judy Garland had told Patty Duke that she reminded her a lot of herself, that they were two women who had come from very similar backgrounds and that it scared Judy Garland that Patty Duke would go down a similar trajectory as her. That didn't necessarily happen, but it's very interesting that they cast a child star in a role of a child star that Judy Garland was, had already lived. What did we all think of Patty Duke in this movie? You guys know I have a fondness for how the Academy Award-winning Patty Duke came at this thing, guns blazing. When you look at the individual scenes, the one that I mentioned and that comes to mind is, I don't know if you guys caught this, but dolls means pills. It was pretty subtle. That's where the title comes from. Neely gets very addicted to the pills, seemingly after the studio puts her on them to help manage her weight and to keep her working for many hours, aka follow the Judy Garland signs as you will. Her trajectory into pill-dumb and the sort of insanity that comes with that makes all of her scenes feel very big and sort of ridiculous as a whole. Looked at in pieces, there's one scene in particular where she has this breakdown She's gone back to Broadway the very end and she's been kicked off the show and she's in this alley with these stairwells. She's 
weeping and she's a total mess. And I a hundred percent was like, yes, Patty Duke is very much calling on her own pill problem here. And she's crying to the sky and she's just naming the names of the other cast members that we know, not the, their characters. And it's the kind of scene that on paper would be very daunting. I imagine for an actor, there's a lot of trust in your director there of, all right, if I go full out, don't make me look super insane. She has so much loveliness in that performance. It is very hard to go that heart-rendingly open with that kind of untethered craziness. I have a soft spot for Patty Duke. Neely, the character, garbage person. She's an ambitious garbage person who drops a lot of F-bombs. It's worth saying for sure that the movie paints her cruelty in par with her addiction but she's pretty awful outside of taking (laughs) barbiturates and whatnot she's definitely a garbage person but patty duke's playing that role so deliciously that it's hard not to just love her anyway patty duke's performance is fascinating because compared to the other two women she has no illusions about wanting anything other than fame she doesn't want to start a family with martin milner who plays the nice guy that she marries mel the guy who knew her from before when they were like hanging out and didn't have any money but she has no interest in starting a family or wanting to have normality she tells him she understands show business is rotten but it's what she wants she's willing to sell her soul so to speak but then she gets these really big showy scenes in the movie that veer on the psychedelic a little bit like that scene where she's in the rehab and they have her in the bathtub She's recounting how she's trying to escape. They have her in this bathtub with harp over her. And she's talking about how she's trying to get her toe through the fabric. And then she tries to escape. And it plays so hilariously because you're watching some woman trying to escape a tarped tub. And you're just like, really? And I've seen the snake pit. It's just not as frightening. But then she has that big moment too where Ted Casablanca, who is the second husband that she meets, who she, everybody keeps thinking is gay, but she says she's the dame that can prove he's not. He's screwing around with some chick in her swimming pool, and she comes out the ultimate way you've proven that you're a drunk or on pills or something. She comes out in her slip and her bra top, and she starts screaming at them. She has these really big, showy sequences that I think even 10 years before... No Hollywood studio would have ever been like, wait, so you want us to greenlight this movie where Patty Duke, Helen Keller, is in her bra and slip, screaming gay slurs at some guy because she's hopped up on pills? It had to have been a risk for her career. Absolutely. The thing that's really notable about her performance in this role too is that the other two women are playing their parts very daintily they just look beautiful and there's in the background of shots doe-eyed whereas patty duke is not afraid to be ugly and disgusting in this role she's got makeup smeared down her face and she's screaming herself hoarse and she was just like really really going for it and you have to imagine watching the star of the patty duke show suddenly just pantyhose ripped as she's like you said screams waking up in the middle of the next day with some dude that she's obviously has yeah. sex with and she has no memory of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's just like painting her as this almost contemporary woman. Like, I think now we're a little bit more used to that. I can't imagine at the time it must have been like a culture shock. This is intervention in 1967 and it had to have been a shock. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's one other dainty character. We have Jennifer North played by Sharon Tate. She is utterly beautiful. The movie tries very hard to make us see her as just a set of boobs. She's introduced wearing a headdress, but the camera zooms in on her chest. And at one point, the guy says it's a really expensive headdress that no one's ever going to see because people are going to be staring at her boobs. Yet the movie subverts that a little bit. She's doing her bust exercises, and then she says, ah, let them droop. She's got a mother who doesn't encourage her at all and just wants money out of her. And it's obvious that Jennifer feels a sense of obligation. And then she meets Tony Polar, kind of a Tony Martin, Dean Martin type of character. There's not any lying or cheating, even though he's a crooner. It's just that he gets a horrible genetic disease. They all live with his sister, played by Lee Grant, 
who I know we had some debate about it last time that I still stand by it. The movie sets them up as being like exes. I literally thought Tony and Marion Pollard were ex-husband and wife. They try very hard to make you believe that they're brother and sister or half siblings, but I don't buy it. I think this goes in one of the grand subgenres of movies where are they lovers? No, they're siblings. I contend that you are an insane person and that they are wonderful siblings. I love Lee Grant in this. And even more thinking about it, the other thing with this film, we don't see, we get an inkling of Barbara's family in Lawrenceville at the beginning when she leaves and they're very kind and she has her wonderful aunt after her mother dies. There's not a lot of positive family elements in this. So the idea of the older sister who's been burdened with the knowledge that her brother has this life-killing disease that she's going to watch him at some point start to crumble and lose control of his body and his mind to live with that and then wanting to dedicate her life to help him achieve the best life he can while he can because she knows she will live so much longer and healthier Come on, that is good sibling love. That's a very generous read on it. I definitely have to side with Kristen. I think it's a little bit creepy. I don't think that there's any like telltale signs that it's like incestuous or anything. I just think until that disease reveal comes out, it just feels like she's slinking around him, almost like cat-like. When we first see her, my roommate, again, who had just seen the movie for the first time, literally just went, witch. <laughs> she's like slurking in a corner and kind of looks like a witch and... She's always smoking cigarettes and sitting in the corner. They paint her as this very mysterious character. So I think the melodramatic part of me that fills in the blanks is just like, what is going on with this relationship? I guess I want to retract that I'm the Helen Lawson and instead put forth that I'd like to be the Lee Grant. Mostly because I hope when I walk in rooms, people are also whispering witch. It's a goal of mine. <laughs> I can also totally blame my weird incest vibes on watching way too much Riverdale. So that might just be like, what is painting my perception there. <laughs> <laughs> the relationship between the three of them outside of the weird relationship between brother and sister is pretty much the only positive series of relationships we get the entire movie. Jennifer's not running away from anything. She wants to run towards a better life for her husband Miriam and her have to band together. And Miriam is probably the most aware character in the movie. She's been a part of the Hollywood industry trying to get Tony's career started and trying to transition him from to a leading man. And when he needs to have that permanent care, when his disease becomes too much, she's the one who says, hey, I got a friend in France and you can do dirty movies, but it's going to be able to afford to keep him in this facility she understands that it's not fair that jennifer has to sell herself but that that's the cards they've been dealt compared to neely who just drowns everything out in pills like miriam and jennifer say hey you know what we gotta pull ourselves up by our bootstraps or our bra straps if anything and at the same time the movie just batters them with issues jennifer gets stricken with breast cancer, the ultimate irony of the entire thing. Her femininity is what kills her. I didn't think of it in that deep a set of terms before, but watching it this time, I was sitting there thinking, that's the most cynical element of Valley of the Dolls, that being a woman is literally a lifetime of pain by outside influences, whether it's genetic or societal. Am I just being completely depressing? (laughs) No, you're right, but it's actually even deeper than that because the reality is it's not breast cancer that kills her. She is set to recover, allegedly, presumably. She's meant to have a mastectomy and have the disease removed and along with it, her breast, which are the things we've been told that is what she's good for. She decides rather than go through life without the two things that give her the most value She takes her own life. So it's not even that femininity kills her. It's that her idea of how society values her femininity kills her. There's layers. It's really ruthless, too. There's that scene right before she decides to take her own life where she's talking to her mother who just she's about to tell her about all of this. And her mom just doesn't care at all. And it's so heartbreaking. Especially, you know, obviously mapping on what we know about Sharon Tate's real life. It's not like a direct parallel, but it's hard to watch that scene and not 
see certain parallels between them. Definitely. There's a few parallels and I'd love to hear Lindsay get more into it because I know you have good background on it. But the idea of Sharon Tate is this woman who had such a short career because of her tragic young murder that she never really had the time to flourish and grow as an actor. And similar to her character, she's someone who unimpeachably beautiful. She's just a stunning person to look at. I'm saying this all with the sort of Western empirical ideas of beauty, but within those, there is something so magnetic about her face. Watching her do anything is delightful because she's just so lovely to look at. And this role is tricky because she's not bad in it, but she's still a little stilted. She's not as comfortable in her skin as Patty Duke, who's just cracked open everything and is shouting at the heavens. She's more restrained and a little uncomfortable and still at an early stage. And we don't get to see her progress. And this role, like a lot of times, the most emotional thing she has to do is against a telephone that there's probably no one on the other line of which is an unfair thing to do to the least seasoned actress amongst them is to say, all right, the scenes where you really need to knock it out of the park and you're getting hammered with all these emotional slings and arrows, you're going to be on a phone by yourself. It's nothing but reaction shots. Action. That's a steep hill to climb. In reality, actually, I don't know if this is wholly true, but her little sister Deborah has said that she was actually the one playing the voice on the other line in a few of the scenes anyway. Your point still stands, which is that she's essentially not actually having an emotional response from another actor during all of that. Obviously, it's not a direct parallel. Killing yourself is a little bit different than being murdered. But like you were saying, the trajectory of her career is cut off at the exact same point that Jennifer's is. And it's a career that was also really based on beauty. This was, I think, Sharon Tate's fourth movie role. So like you're saying, she had absolutely no real time to progress as a performer. But this is like when she's starting to get her foot in the door. She was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Newcomer for this role. So it's like really the taking off point of her career. And just like Jennifer's, it's just really horrible that in a year's time, she wouldn't even be alive. That's what gives Valley of the Dolls the allure that it has, if anything. The character is almost like, I don't necessarily like the term used with Sharon Tate, which is the death of innocence. Jennifer's not necessarily innocent, but she is a good person. And that's the saddest thing of all, is that even when Neely goes to the marquee at the end of the movie, and there's the picture of Jennifer promoting the movie and she says you know oh the mole on your keister they cover it with makeup it's nearly attempting to bring her down and you just can't because you understand that what jennifer is doing in this movie is as selfless as it gets she's not doing this to make money she's not doing this for artistic expression she's doing this for her husband which is pretty much the only altruistic thing that happened Although, was I led to believe that she had to sleep with that producer dude at the end of the film? He won't let her out of the contract, or he won't give her the cut that she wants. Was I hallucinating? It almost like it was implying that she had to in order to get out. Basically, anything that was French was just considered lecherous, so that might have been coming across. I like that they wanted us to think the French were the lechers, and yet they put in, what, like five whole minutes of this porn that she was in. There was a lot of it within Valley of the Dolls. We haven't talked about Helen Lawson, Drea's alter ego, one of Drea's alter egos, played by Susan Hayward to replace Judy Garland. I've seen several of the clips of Judy Garland. She did costume tests for this movie and she did perform the I'll Plant My Own Tree number, which, no offense to Susan Hayward's vocal double, but Judy was better. Helen Lawson is the old guard, played by a member of the old guard. She's really good. She has a lot of on-the-nose moments. She's the one that declares that Neely has talent, but the talent won't destroy her. She'll destroy herself, because that's what happens when you have talent. And she gets a really memorable send-off. But for me, I think the most egregious misuse of Susan Hayward is when they put her on the stage to perform her Broadway show, 
and it's just one lone tree with geometric shapes on it that twirls around her head as she sings this song. And I'm sitting there thinking, from an audience perspective, the show is terrible. Yeah, I really want to know the plot of that musical. Like, what is going on (laughs) with that weird chandelier? What is the plot of this song? Why is she planting her own tree? I mean, I know it's metaphorical, but why? Why is she doing it? What do you guys think of Susan Hayward's performance? She's wonderful in this. When we meet her, you immediately get that wonderful regal sense that you're meant to. Of This is a dame of the theater. Of course, they're also kowtowing to her and she's being horrible to people, which is how we know if someone's important or not. She really owned that and came across, deservedly so from experience, that she had worked her way up and was the top of the mountain and going to stay there, damn it. The early scenes... She's the bad guy that sets things in motion. But then when we come back and we see the musical that she's doing, I did not know until they cut to the audience if I was supposed to think it was good or not because it's so awkwardly staged and she's just standing there. It's half a Fosse lean. Only her upper half was trained by Fosse and the bottom is Martha Graham. It's the weirdest body lean And then she's singing and doing nothing, and there's a weird stage design. I couldn't tell if it was supposed to be, oh no, she's really fallen down, and this is going to be such a terrible canceled in one day. And then they all start applauding, and they're like, oh, she's still got it. It's like, all right, I guess she's still got it. It's very confusing. Yeah, the way that plays out is just part of the bizarre logic of this movie, where it's like, we don't know what time it is, we don't know what's going on, we don't know what's good or bad, and that Broadway show is the distillation of all of that. I like that idea of this Broadway show being, if do you want a sample of not knowing how the world works in this movie, let us show you this Broadway show. But her final scene, because Neely shows up to rub her face in things, and confronts her in this very grand bathroom, a bathroom I would spend a lot of time in, whatever their venue is, they're both terrible to each other. And then Neely ratchets up the terribleness by pulling off the wig that Helen is wearing. And of course, Helen's hair is this gorgeous, all white sheen, like it's this beautiful old lady hair underneath it. And she stuffs it in the toilet. It's humiliating. Her exit line is maybe the most camp thing about this movie. When... (laughs) Is it Kristen's soulmate who's the bathroom attendant is like, we could sneak you out the back. She's like, I will exit the way I came in. And she puts a headscarf on. It's like a pure Catherine Hepburn type of moment. Before we start wrapping things up, we should probably mention there are men in this movie, but they're literally the most boring part. And they all look the same. If you asked me to tell you the difference between Lion Burke and Kevin Gilmore... I would not be able to because I thought they were the same man up until 10 seconds ago. You have Tony Polar and Ted Casablanca. All the men here are like stocky, jerk hair, look like any average dude. Like none of these guys got matinee style good looks in my opinion. And then you have Martin Milner whose only distinction is that he's blonde. That's literally the only way I can sum up the male characters in this movie. Did anybody else have any thoughts on the dudes in Valley of the Dolls? No, you pretty much nailed it. I do think they're all also vaguely old looking. I didn't take the time to look up the age difference between these men and the female actresses, but I'm pretty sure all the women in this movie were like early 20s and the men all just look really old <laughs> comparatively, which I know is standard, but it was really noticeable. Maybe just watching it on Blu-ray too, like marked difference. No, you're totally right. Every male-female relationship, the men are enough different that it feels like that stereotypical, oh, my life's only worthwhile if I have the youngest, most attractive woman next to me, which feeds back to my other theory of not really knowing who a lot of this movie was made for, because that seems like a real male fantasy. Well, the movie was a huge hit upon release in 1967. It only had a budget of $5 million, but ended up going on to make $50 million, despite some fairly scathing reviews. It was one of the most popular films to come out that year, but Jacqueline Suzanne was not having it. She hated this movie. When Jacqueline Suzanne saw director Mark Robson on board a passenger ship that she was taking, she called the film, quote, a piece of shit. 
Jackie definitely had some opinions. She ended up turning around and writing a script for a sequel that she wanted to do, preferably, I guess, to fix what had been done with the original book. 20th Century Fox rejected it, and because they rejected it in the contract, it allowed them to make a sequel that they wanted to do. So they hired out a very young neophyte screenwriter by the name of Roger Ebert, and got director Russ Meyer to direct a pastiche called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls in 1970 that has nothing whatsoever to do with this movie, if anything is considered worse than this film. And Jacqueline Suzanne sued the studio. The suit went to court. She ended up dying in 1974, but her estate did win a little money from Fox for what had happened. I have not seen the sequel. Has anybody here seen Beyond the Valley of the Dolls? I have seen it. It is very, very bizarre. I haven't seen it in a while. I've definitely seen the original a lot more frequently. I just recall it being even trippier somehow. I need to rewatch it. The second film fit my first thoughts of what I thought this would be like, which is to say a little bit zanier. It's interesting. I do love the Roger Ebert element of it all because that's just beautiful. It's amazing how this movie is twisted and turned, and yet no one's talked about remaking it. There were rumors a while back that there were... There was? I didn't know that. Yeah, there was rumors that they were going to remake it with Jennifer Lawrence in the Jennifer North role. Lawrence is cropping up somewhere in this, isn't she? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This was years ago, though. I think it was after Silver Linings Playbook or something, so I don't know. I'm sure it went nowhere. I do recall there being discussions. When those rumors started coming out, I remember I reread the book, so that's the only reason I can still recall that. There's potential with this movie and this story if they did remake it because the idea of a film that would take three female movie stars and then give them each very separate tracks but one of the weakest elements of this film to me is their friendship and that's something that a modern remake would spend a lot of time on because that's gained in importance for audiences as it should there's a lot of scenes where You'll see two of them in a room together and you're like, oh, I didn't even imagine they'd still be in touch. And again, it's partly because of this not knowing how much time passed, what they offer each other and how they're actually friends beyond just, oh, you are here as a vessel for me to say where I am emotionally and then a catalyst so that I go do something else. There's not a lot of authentic rapport or females sharing and a natural friendship between them. And it is something that if they ever did remake it, I would hope they would lean on that as more of a, a fulcrum. I feel like a remake would also maybe do better with the diction plot lines, because I know we had talked about this before, but there's not a lot of logic and coherency to how addiction works in this movie, maybe outside of Neely's characters. I feel like a modern remake would definitely probably focus on that aspect a little bit more too. Overall, what do we think about Valley of the Dolls. Is it worth recommending? Unironically, I should stipulate that. I really enjoyed this movie. It's not for everybody's taste. The late 60s was a very weird time in cinema. It's worth watching, if only to show the power of women's pictures and their placement in cinematic history. And if you want to see Sharon Tate in a role that, to say that it's proof that she was a bad actress is to totally miss the point of the movie. So I think she's amazing in it. And so is everybody else. For a movie that does play as incredibly overwrought at times, it's so compelling to watch. I enjoy this movie a lot. Lindsay, overall thoughts on Valley of the Dolls? It's a time capsule. It's truly fascinating, and I would recommend it on that, if nothing else. It's such a bizarre, weird snapshot of this time in, in Hollywood history, really. And again, for the Sharon Tate element, it came out two years before she passed away. It's got all of that history on it as well. I love the movie also, and I love it very unironically. It's just a movie that I find a lot of value in and been talking about. You know, there aren't a lot of movies about women from this time that feel as vocal and important. I definitely would recommend it to almost anyone. If you're a cinephile, it's definitely worth a place. I would agree. I think that it's a good view on its own, but I also think historically having it in mind in terms of what was coming out at this time, the female representation of it, not all good. I agree. This is one to have on your eyeballs if you are a film fan. Listeners, let us know your thoughts on Sharon Tate, Valley of the Dolls. 
melodrama, any of it, you can email it to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com and we'll read them on the next episode. We'd like to thank once again, Lindsay Romaine for joining us on the show today. Lindsay, where can fans find and get in touch with you online, read your work? You can follow me on Twitter at Lindsay Romaine, or you can follow my work on Nerdist.com. Drea Clark, where are you on the internet? I'm on Twitter at the Drea Clark and at Who Shot Ya Pod. And you can always find me over at Journeys underscore film on Twitter. I also review classic films regularly at journeysandclassicfilm.com. And I'm all over the internet. You can just Google my name. If you are over at journeysandclassicfilm.com, we are starting August with my Summer Under the Stars blogathon co-hosted by Samantha Ellis. We're going to be giving away prizes. So if you're a blogger and you want to have a little fun, definitely get in touch with us and you can enjoy Summer Under the Stars with us. Also, please... I know we should have promoted it at the top of the show, but we didn't. If you are a patron or you have been thinking about becoming one, please note that in August we're doing our first ever patron drive in honor of Summer Under the Stars. Our goal is to hit 15 to 20 patrons by the end of August. We're going to be giving out a special prize pack to thank everybody for their support. Me, Drea, and Sam are going to be live streaming, tweeting, writing. We're still coming up with our individual ways of doing it. A star during TCM Summer Under the Stars. We're going to be doing 24 hours in hopes of reaching our Patreon goal. As a patron, you get access to special pins, two bonus shows. Yes, complete shows, doubled features, and based on a true podcast, as well as my access to TCM audio, special interviews. There is all sorts of stuff going on the Patreon in the next couple of weeks. You can get in on it, and it's all exclusive. Patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. You can listen to us a variety of different ways, either at ticklishbusiness.podbean.com, Stitcher Radio, Player FM, or SoundCloud and Spotify. We are all over. So wherever you get podcasts, you can find us there. The podcast is also on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz. Remember, Patreon is patreon.com slash ticklish biz. All of that is uh, available for you to check out. Next time, we are going from 1967 and melodrama to the 1930s and screwball comedy. We will be back talking about 1936's My Man Godfrey. I've been watching a lot of William Powell this week. Dre, are you excited to talk about My Man Godfrey? Always. So that'll be next time. Always.